everyone. It's the Sun Also Rises podcast. I'm Jeremiah Jacques. And today I want to tell you about a small light that glowed boldly. Even during a time when a thick darkness was blanketing much of the world. Here were innocents caught and definitely set for death. And here he was in a position to give them hope to get out. And his government was saying no. Today, on The Sun Also Rises, from KPCG-FM, we proudly present Sugihara's Stand. This story begins in March of 1939, just a few months before World War II broke out. At this time, a new wave of intense persecution of the Jewish people was already well underway in Germany and other parts of Europe. And in March of that pivotal year, a Japanese man named Chiyune Sugihara arrived in Europe. Mr. Sugihara was a high-ranking official in the Japanese government, and he was sent to the nation of Lithuania there in Eastern Europe so that he could open up a consulate service on behalf of the Japanese government. It's important to know that by this time, Japan had grown very close to Germany. The two nations did not become official allies until the following year. But at this time, in early 1939, they were already working closely together. They were giving robust support to each other on a wide range of issues. And both nations had their eyes on domination. While Mr. Sugihara had only been working in his new position in Lithuania for a few months when German armies invaded Poland. The Nazi forces targeted Poland's Jewish populations more than any other group. A strict curfew was imposed. Synagogues and homes were burned to the ground. Jewish shopkeepers were summarily beaten and killed. And when the Soviet forces entered Poland from the east, it only compounded the chaos and sent the nation's Jews scattering in every direction. Many of the Jewish people understood that to survive, they would have to flee the country. Thousands crammed into dangerously crowded trains, crossed Poland's northeastern border, and entered Lithuania. One of these was a seven-year-old boy named Leo Melamed. This seven-year-old Jewish boy escaped the Nazi war machine. And the story of how he escaped and his interaction with Mr. Chiyune Sugihara, and the life that he went on to live is truly extraordinary. And he shared his story with The Sun Also Rises in a telephone interview. It is all due to the bravery and, and courage of Chiyune Sugihara, who had the courage to say no to his government when he knew right from wrong. When Mr. Malamed says it's all due to Sugihara's bravery, the word all in the sentence is a big one. Mr. Malamed has lived an exceptional life. When you discuss free and open markets and commodities futures exchanges and all of the financial innovation that has happened around the world over the last five decades, his name, Leo Malamed, is the one that comes to the forefront. The positive developments he brought into the world would be difficult to overstate. But it was all possible thanks to the bravery 
of Mr. Sugihara. Before telling about the crucial Sugihara chapter of his life, Mr. Malamed gave some backstory about his family fleeing from Poland. Uh, we lived in Bialystok, Poland, which is, um, uh, it was the second largest city in Poland. It had um, the second largest probably population of Jews, maybe 60,000 or something like that, which is major in, in Europe. His parents were both Yiddish school teachers in Bialystok, and his father was also an outspoken critic of the communists in Russia. This detail becomes important later in the story. Another important detail is that his father was... The only uh, Jew elected to the city council of Bialystok. When the Nazis invaded Poland in September of 1939, it officially ignited World War II, and they were pushing very quickly toward Bialystok. Since Leo Malamed's father was one of the city councilmen, he was told to flee the city before the Nazis got there. Otherwise, the Nazis were sure to use him and the other prominent citizens as hostages. This was a tactic the Nazis had already started using in other cities. They would capture some prominent people, then issue their orders to everyone else, and if the people didn't comply... The hostage will be responsible... If anything of the dictates that they will issue goes wrong, uh, they will take a couple of them and shoot them and kill them. So his father, along with the other councilmen and other political figures, fled. Each of the the, the members of the city council, of course, had to make a decision of whether to leave their family behind or not. Um, But all of them decided that this was perhaps the best thing they could do for their family is to um, save themselves from being hostages. And my father, along with the rest of them, on a given night, um, departed. Now, that night um, is memorable in my mind, even though I was just seven years old, uh, because of the fact that my mother woke me. I knew none of what I'm telling you now, but my mother woke me up in the middle of the night to say that we have to get dressed and go to say goodbye to your father. And in the middle of the night, there were bombs. You could hear the echoing in in the streets um, with the flashes of of guns. And we ran through the streets uh, to go where the appointed a truck was going to be, and we found everybody there. Um, all families were there uh, saying goodbye to their respective uh, fathers. My father was off uh, with the rest of them, and then we ran back. And I mean literally, my mother was very... Uh, Active, and I couldn't hardly keep up with her running. I recall her 
holding my hand and kind of dragging me because it was very dangerous on the streets. Young Leo and his mother didn't know if they would ever see him again. Within a few days, the German armies marched into Bialystok. On, on, the, uh, on the night, that, the day that the, uh, the German tanks came in, um, I was looking through the window and saw the tanks coming through the streets, and it was an awesome sight. The Malamids had painted the windows of their house black so that at night no one outside could see that their lights were on. In the evenings, Leo would sit and gaze out through a tiny peephole that he had secretly scratched through the paint in one of the windows. And one night, while I was there, one evening, it wasn't night, many people used to crossed the cemetery to get into Bialystok in a faster shortcut. Um, unfortunately, the, the uh, curfew was at 6 p.m. And this girl uh, I saw rushing, uh, uh, entered the cemetery and rushing towards the inside of Bialystok when she was accosted by two uh, German soldiers. And although I didn't know at the time, it was the first rape I had ever encountered. Not something you forget. And the screams of the girl, um, I mean, she, she must have been something like 16 or 17 when this happened. Not long after that, just as they had expected, the Germans came looking for Leo's father. My father... Uh, was gone when the Germans came in. And when they came, the, the Gestapo came to look for him, just like the mayor said they would, was the only scene I ever remember where I literally was frightened and felt um, a, really a, a fear factor that I I never felt before the Gestapo came in and slapped my mother around, uh, turned our house upside down. And when I say house, it was a small little affair with only one bedroom. And um, and slapped her around, looking where any, wherever my father could be hidden. Of course, he wasn't there. And uh, he, she couldn't tell him where he was because they, she didn't know, literally. That fear of her in that moment kind of stayed with me my whole life. Another two weeks went by and young Leo and his mother still didn't know if they would ever see Mr. Malamud again. But then one evening, a neighbor knocked on their door. Weeks into the occupation, my mother's friend, who owned a telephone, got a call from my father. We we didn't have a phone, of course, but she did. She was a merchant, and she had a phone, and she ran to our house to, to say to my mother that my father was on the phone. She has to come with her. And my father told my mother that we must 
immediately leave Bialystok. News was spreading quickly that the border between Poland and Lithuania was just about to be closed. Young Leo and his mother took the very last train out of Bialystok that made it through before that border closed. They arrived in the Lithuanian city of Wilno, which today is called Vilnius. The border has moved since then, but at that time, the city was very near the border of Poland and Lithuania. It's normally about a two-hour or three-hour ride to Wilno, but it took all night because the train would stop in the middle of its journey. Everybody, the, the whistles blew, and that was a notice that the tracks were being bombed, and so everybody ran out of the train, and then later there was a relief whistle, and we'd all get back on the train, but all this took a whole night. We finally got to Wilno and found our father waiting for, my father waiting for me. This was our initial escape from the Nazis. They had arrived in the city with almost nothing, but they scraped together enough to rent a one-room loft in Wilno's Jewish quarter. They lived there for about six months, and every week the rumors of what the Germans were doing to European Jews kept getting worse. Until this time, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin had allowed the Lithuanians to control Wilno, but in mid-July of 1940, he changed his mind and took it back. While he was at it, he took all of Lithuania, along with Latvia and Estonia. This was bad news for Mr. Malamed, who had, before the war, been an outspoken critic of the communist ideologies. The Soviets wasted no time rounding up politically suspect Jews and non-Jews, and they shipped them off to slave labor camps in Siberia. Mr. Malamed was sure his name was on their lists, so he went into hiding in the forests outside the Lithuanian city of Kaunas, which is sometimes called Kovno. It was Lithuania's capital at that time. Once the Russians took over Wilno, he had to go into hiding because um, of the fact that he was probably on a wanted list by the Russians. He left us, my mother and me, in a one-bed, one-room um, affair uh, in, in Wilno, and he uh, hid out with many others in the forests of Kovno. By this time, most of Western Europe had been conquered by the Nazis. The rest of the free world, with just a few exceptions, had stopped accepting Jewish refugees from Poland, Lithuania, or pretty much anywhere in the region controlled by Nazis. The options for Jews were becoming fewer each week. It was at this time, when Mr. Malamed was hiding in the forest, that he heard some other men who were hiding out there talk about the Japanese consul general, Mr. Sugihara. And, and then the story of Sugihara comes into play. Rumor had it that uh, in Kovno, which was the capital then of uh, Lithuania, the Japanese general consul Chiyun Sugihara was reputedly 
thinking about giving out um, transit visas to Japan. And my father, along with some, well, it turned out to be 2,000, but um, in the beginning there was only a handful would would appear in Sugihara's um, premises or near near the premises and wait for Sugihara to appear and talk to them. Every day for many weeks, his father would sneak into downtown Konos and find himself among hundreds of other Jews in front of the tiny Japanese consulate. They would line up starting at 5 a.m. every morning. They knew that the slip of paper that Mr. Sugihara could give them could mean the difference between living and dying for their families. Mr. Sugihara wanted to help the Jews. He had heard what was happening to them in Germany and beyond, and he knew their lives were endangered. But he also knew that his government was allied with Germany. He knew it was a long shot, but he decided to ask the Japanese government for permission to help the Jews leave Europe. Eventually, Sugihara sent a um, telex to uh, his foreign affairs office in Tokyo saying that there is a number of refugees in Kovno and that he was inclined to give them a transit visa because otherwise um, they were going to be killed and these were innocent people uh, so that he thought it was the right thing to do. Well, the foreign office of Japan didn't think so and told him, no, don't do that because we our, our allies are the Germans and they don't like these people. Mr. Sugihara's conscience weighed heavily on him. He actually issued the request to Tokyo three times. All three times the answer was the same. Do not help the Jews leave. Sugihara was caught in a dilemma. He was trapped between conscience and duty. He had a big decision to make. So he called a family meeting. If you'll flash forward with me some 50 years, I met the oldest son of Sugihara, who was five years old at the time I was describing, while I was something like seven. We met 50 years later in Tokyo and became very good friends. Uh, His name was Hiroki. He told me that at the point in time when when the foreign office had given uh, Sugihara the third time no, he went into and called his family together. Now, his family in the consulate was, uh, besides himself, his wife. They had three kids, of which Hiroki was five. The other, the other boy was three, and I think there was a little girl who was only about a year old. And, uh, and the uh, nanny was his wife's sister. And, of course, there was no real staff involved. This was a very small consulate. He called them together and he told them the story and and told them that if he listens to the dictates of his government, he would be violating the dictates of his God. 
Now, as, as the history knows, he had by then converted to Christianity so that when he said his God, he meant the Christian faith that he had adopted. Here were innocents um, caught and definitely set for death. And here he was in a position to give them a hope. And his government was saying no. Hiroki said to me that he was the first to raise his hand and say yes, yes. He was a five-year-old, of course. <laughs> So Mr. Sugihara was encouraged by the support of little Hiroki and the rest of his family. He decided not to follow the orders coming from Tokyo. He decided instead to issue the life-saving visas. He knew this was risking his career, his livelihood, and even the safety of his family. But he knew that it was the right thing to do. So against the wishes of Imperial Japan, he started writing visas for the Jewish people. Right around this time, the Soviets told all foreign embassies to leave Lithuania. Just about all of them did, but Chiyune Sugihara put in a special request for a 20-day extension, and the authorities gave it to him. And he made good use of those 20 days. He and his family worked night and day. Soon, the hundreds of applicants became thousands. When some of them started climbing over the wall of the compound, Mr. Sugihara came out to tell them that he would do his very best to help them all. He could see in their bloodshot eyes that the world was falling apart. On most days, he wrote over 300 visas, which would normally have been about a month's work. The Jewish Virtual Library says Mr. Sugihara slept very little during this time. and he didn't even stop for meals. His wife would make him a sandwich that he would quickly eat as he continued riding visas. He lost weight and became profoundly exhausted, working 18 to 20 hours a day. But he kept on riding visas. Mr. Sugihara didn't want to lose a single minute. The Jewish people in the lines were entirely at his mercy. In a flash, his 20 days were up. It was September 1st, and he had to board the train to leave Lithuania. Before the train left, he kept on writing the documents and handing them out the window to the Jews waiting below. As the train began rolling away, Mr. Sugihara extended himself halfway out the window and said to the crowd, Please forgive me. I cannot write anymore. I will pray for your safety. And then with tears streaming down his face, he bowed to the Jews on the platform in typical Japanese submissiveness. Reports say that the Jews called out saying they would never forget him. And then as a parting gift, he threw his consul visa stamp to one of the refugees 
and the man was apparently able to use the stamp to save even more Jews. There's some debate over the total number of Jews that Mr. Sugihara saved. Each visa could be used for an entire family, so each one might represent two, three, four, or more people. The most widely accepted figure for the total number of people that he saved is 6,000. And today there are said to be more than 40,000 human beings alive who descended from those original 6,000. And of the original 6,000 people, Three of them were the Malamids. Mr. and Mrs. Malamid and little Leo, all together again. Mr. Sugihara had written a transit visa for them on August 31st, one day before he left. That visa gave us hope. The visa gave the Malamids a chance. It gave them immense hope, but it did not mean their worries were over. In order to leave Russia, you had to get permission. The minute you asked for permission to leave Russia, which was the land of milk and honey, you became suspect, because why would you want to leave the, the, the Garden of Eden? So you, you took a, a risk when you did that, and of course, in my father's case, the risk was even multiplied by the fact that he was a known anti-Stalinist. And if they put the two and two together, um, he would be arrested. But somehow the Soviets never connected the dots, and they gave the Malamids permission to take a train all the way across Russia to get to Japan. The train ride was slow and uncertain took about three weeks on the train because the train was a one-track affair and so it it was going east and if there was a westbound train it would have to go off to, to the side and they my parents never knew whether it would ever pick up the journey again so it was a very frightening kind of uh, journey but after every tense and seemingly eternal stop the train would slowly start again and keep on heading east. Finally, after three weeks, they arrived in Vladivostok on the eastern coast of mighty Russia. From there, they boarded a tiny Japanese ship that was never intended to transport passengers. It took three days to cross the Japanese ocean. It was a terrible, terrible journey with uh, us living in a junk boat for three days on the, on the floor. Um, of the hull of the ship. It, it took about, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 people at a time. The family lived in Kobe, Japan for several months and were just beginning to settle into life among the Japanese people when they were approved to immigrate to America. We were approved and in April of 1941, which is just six months before Japan attacked uh, the United States, we ended up in Seattle, Washington. That's my story. That was really just the beginning of his story. From Seattle, the Malamed family soon made their way to Chicago. That's where the young Leo grew up to become one of the most important innovators in all of history. 
Nobel laureates Milton Friedman, Merton Miller, and Martin Scholes have all three called Mr. Leo Malamed the most important financial innovator in the second half of the 20th century. And we are all the beneficiaries of his innovations and the free markets that they have safeguarded. But none of Mr. Malamed's accomplishments would have been possible had it not been for the bravery and altruism of Mr. Chiyune Sugihara. History proved that the Malamids were right to flee. By the end of 1941, Bialystok and Wilno fell to the Nazis, along with the rest of Poland and Lithuania. The Jewish populations were herded into ghettos, and by the end of the war, 90% of both Poland and Lithuania's Jews had been murdered. The number would have almost certainly included the Malamids, had it not been for the visa that Mr. Sugihara gave them. And since Mr. Malamed knows that he owes his life to Mr. Sugihara, no matter how famous and influential Mr. Malamed is, he never passes up a chance to remind the world of the rare courage of the Japanese official. And it is a lesson to the world that one man can change the world. We're coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises. Please send us your feedback by emailing tsar at kpcg.fm. I'd like to thank Mr. Leo Malamed for sharing his astounding and inspiring story with us. I would also like to thank Mr. Richard Weston for helping to orchestrate the interview for today's show, and the KPCG technical crew, Dwight Falk and Abraham Blondeau. I'll leave you with the words of Chiyune Sugihara himself, which he said after someone asked him why he'd chosen to help all those refugees. Do what is right because it is right, and leave it alone.